If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast, where behavior analysis and social justice collide. Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. Welcome back, beautiful humans. This is Erin. And it's Denisha. Glad to have you all here for another episode. We're very excited about uh, about this one. We've been prepping it for a long time. But before we get into that, let's check in as we usually do. How are you, Denisha? I am. I'm doing good this week. I'm just really, I've had a lot of energy. I talked about it last week, but I've been taking care of myself a little better than normal. So um, it's been paying off. And I'm in good spirits, and I'm really excited about tonight's show, which the listeners will know why very soon. Yeah, um, you sounded very, you said peppy, but and, well, that's what I was like, y'all, you seem peppy. I didn't know if it was because you were excited about this episode or if there was something else, um, but it makes sense taking care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Makes, uh, makes a How have you been? Difference. <laughs> I've been good. I've been good. I traveled. I'm um, going to FABA, so Florida Association of Behavior Analysis Conference. This is my third year in a row doing that. Um, things have been like good, stressful, good, stressful, prepping for presentations and things. So you have your Ignite presentation or your Ignite. Uh, oh my God. What is your spiel? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So Ignite is like this five minute fast paced uh, where you, where you, um, it, inspire the audience, so to speak. So we're going to try to bring a whole room of behavior analysts together and connect them all in five minutes. So I hope somebody's recording it. I want to see it. I'm sure I'll make sure somebody does typically, but we'll have to, we'll have to share it. It'll be great. But yeah. Um, what we also wanted to do with our little check-in here, because at the end of the last episode, when we talked about the fundamental attribution error, we wanted, we said we were going to take some data and we encouraged everybody else to as well. So I'm interested to, to know if anybody else did, but I know that you and I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and how did that, how, first of all, how'd that go for you? Cause I have some insights, but I want to know how it went for you. <laughs> I saw some themes with mine. Um, yeah. So I ended up doing it. I did it for longer than three days. I've just been keeping up with it every single day. Um, and I definitely noticed a concurrent theme and I mentioned it on the last show. It comes out for me when I'm driving and I think it might be part of my road rage. <laughs> road rage. I did it twice today, both times while driving too. So, oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely repeated behavior and it's okay. a, it's a pattern for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. But that's what we're, that's the whole point of doing this, right? Yeah, exactly. So become aware. Um, Funny story, 
I totally forgot to do it until I was in an airport. I think I was getting off the plane and you're like, that's fundamental attribution error number three for me. And I'm like, crap, I forgot. <laughs> so <laughs> I started at that very moment. Uh, and I think I was up to like 10 or something on day two, which was ridiculous. However, I wanted to ask you a question. When we do this, are we, I, I was focusing only on negative things. But I also do it, too, when things that make me happy or like good things happen. And so I stopped taking data because I realized that all of my data like was was biased in a sense that I was only looking at half of the picture. Yeah. So I noticed that, too. But I intentionally continued <laughs> and um, I was going to talk to you about that, actually. And when you said that you had observations, I kind of wondered that because when we framed it, we were talking about the way that uh, the larger world sees other people and like their mistakes, quote unquote. Um, but definitely we relate other people's actions to internal states too. like, you know, there are certain people that you're just like, oh, you know, they're just. They're just a, they're just so positive or um, mm -hmm. whatever. Like there's other ways that can be not in a negative way or another way that we can attribute someone's characteristics. So um, I didn't count those for my data, though, <laughs> but I noticed it yes. um, when they came up for me. Yeah. Yeah. So. OK. So one other thing that I noticed, this was the big one. And again, I don't know how to objectify this i don't know how to it's it's just an observation that when i noticed that i would call somebody a bad word in my head or something like that or mm -hmm. like you know a jerk or something like that and i was like all right there's another one and i would tell you that i would immediately go to the environmental causes and i would start to run through some of these things and when i would do that i got in such a like a, a conflict with myself internally, the more emotional that the situation was, the more conflicted I became. Like, I was like, no, damn it. That like, you're mean. Like that's, I, I felt like this need to apply. It was, it's like, it was ingrained in me. It was so hard, but mm -hmm. it was the more emotional, the situation, the more that I felt, the more that it, it, it affected me personally like to my identity or something like that. If it was just like a little mm -hmm. annoyance, I could be like, ah, that person's probably busy or rushing or something like that. But it, when it was like, to me, if it was somebody was like staring at me or I, all these thoughts started to go, it was like, wow, that person then became uh, all of these things that I don't like. And it was like, I had to, I had to think that that's what they were. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that is, mm -hmm. but it's like it, I think, that just speaks to how ingrained this is in our, in our human nature and in our culture is mm -hmm. to make those errors and apply that rationale to somebody's behavior, even as a behavior analyst. Yeah. I, was kind of, <laughs> I don't know. I kind of felt bad about that after a while, but I just, it's information. It's just, I don't know. I don't know. We need that information. Do you think that um, with the data that you took, that it's, that it was useful for you? Maybe do you, like, did you see a decrease over the days or? I did actually. And that's when I did start to notice that was when I started to realize that I'm only looking at half the picture. I think mm -hmm. it was because I stopped 
focusing. So I didn't stop focusing, but I was able to kind of pull myself in and have more of an objective view on certain situations. Um, and then I started doing it to all other situations. It's like if somebody's being sweet or kind or caring, it's because they have a sweet personality. I'm like, mm, wouldn't that be the same? Yeah. The same the rationale, the same error I'm making. But it doesn't mm -hmm. feel like an error when I'm calling somebody something positive. You know, yeah. I don't know. It's just the language. It was really tripping me up. It was hard. <laughs> well, there you have it, folks. Hopefully you took care of that. <laughs> and hopefully we can continue that. We need to hear if, if anyone else had revelations this past week with theirs. Yeah. Should we get to it? Because oh I'm God. ready. I know. You're so, you're like, <laughs> I'm telling you, I've never seen you this energized. It's so exciting. Awesome. I'm on the edge of my seat. Let's do it. All yes. right. So today we're going to be talking about dun, 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 activist behavior. Yeah. I feel like we need like an applause or something or like, yay. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but before we do that, actually, um, just want to take the time to thank each and every one of you that are listening for the feedback on our show thus far. If you've been listening, you already know starting this was nerve wracking for Aaron and myself, but receiving the positive praise over the past few weeks has really given us some extra motivation to keep pushing. So I think we're in for the long haul now. What do you think, Aaron? Without a doubt. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Totally. Uh-huh. Yeah. For real. Okay. <laughs> yes. yes. I, I'm glad you said that. Thank you. Seriously. From the like the bottom of our hearts, you know, um, it's, it is, it's vulnerable. And in, unless you have that support, it makes it much, much more challenging. So, yes. All right. Well, let's get into it. So, like I said, today we're going to be talking about activism. And there are people amongst our field who are activists um, and those who are not activists, but they ask a lot how to get involved. And so if you're listening and you're also on the journey of merging behavioral science and activism, you can probably relate to the state of chaos that I think us analysts who are currently on this journey feel um, while we try to attempt to furnish information that makes sense to the larger community. Infusing these two worlds together has been very challenging. Um, and I've talked about it probably every single show, but messy seems to be like a really good word to describe it. And Evelyn called it that before. And I actually was reading an article and um, they stated that messy seems like an apt descriptor for the relationship between academic and activist work. And I was like, yes, everyone knows that now. <laughs> messy. messy. I like that. Yeah. That hits home. I, I don't think there's a better way to describe it because my mind, it stays all over the place. But <laughs> all right. So tonight I have been excited to bring to you a special person. Um, we have with us someone by the name of Bria Baker. And Bria is my social justice sister, but my sister. And if you're part of the community that I am in, you know, we have play cousins, play sisters sometimes. And like Bria, for me, we're not related by blood, but she's definitely my sister, someone that, you know, I can call on and we can hang out and have a great time together. But 
the first time that I met her, I was immediately like just like drawn to her because she is like of a radiant energy, um, but also a beacon of hope and a ray of light. And that's a lot of mentalism there, but <laughs> she's just, I know she's just an amazing person. And I remember um, one of our first conversations, uh, me just saying to her, like, you have a voice that the world needs to hear. And the first opportunity I got, I was working with the organization in New York. Um, we, we needed a panelist and I was like, Bria, please do it. Cause it was like in a selfish way. I was like, I want to hear you speak and I want to make everyone in my organization hear you speak and hear the amazingness that comes out of your mouth. So, um, I am asking her to come back tonight selfishly again, because I am ready to receive the gems that she's going to give us tonight. And I think that our field can really stand to benefit from hearing someone who's so deep into the activist movement. And so with that, I will let you know, Bria is currently the Director of Programs and Social Impact Advisor and Trainer for We Inspire Justice. This is a program that was founded by Matt McGorry and J. Love Calderon. She also served as the Program and Youth Engagement Coordinator at the Gathering for Justice, and she was the Executive Assistant to Carmen Perez, who is the Executive Director of the Gathering for Justice. Bria has been involved with youth activism for years as the President of Yale's chapter of the NAACP, where her focus was juvenile justice through campaigns such as Raising the Age in Connecticut, Mandatory Memorandums of Understanding in School, and Against Police Brutality in New Haven. Bria began working with the Women's March as their youngest national organizer, focusing on partnerships, college mobilization, and logistics. She's a racial and gender justice activist working locally and nationally towards the liberation of all oppressed people with an emphasis on Black people and women. When not organizing, you can find her traveling the world, listening to Beyonce, or manifesting the life of her ancestors deserved. And that was a lot because Bria does a lot and you get to hear that. <laughs> Bria, welcome. Yes. First of all, Denisha, you literally made me cry. I'm over here like sniffling um, for your intro. But thank you so much for having me um, and for believing in me and pushing my voice. And Erin, I'm so excited to join you because um, I know that anyone who's on the, a show with Denisha is great people. <laughs> I know, right? Yes, I feel are. so honored. <laughs> oh, oh so glad you're here. Thank you so much. Me too. I'm so excited to be on this and just to look at activism through this lens. I feel like I'm going to learn a lot from you both. Cool. So it's let's get started. I, oh, go ahead. I, I, no, no, no. I feel like, so I, like, I don't identify as an activist, so I'm really excited about this um, to not only learn, but like to have, so, cause that was one of our values as this podcast is to have somebody outside of the field. And when you say something that is so messy, merging, behavior analysis and social justice or activism or whatever that is, it's like, all right, here's a person who can maybe help shed some light and give some clarity. So I'm, su I'm, su I'm super excited for this too. Yes. And maybe you will find that you are an activist or <laughs> you might become one after this show if you don't feel like you are right now. Sounds all right. Good. So let's get started then. Um, first things first, what do we mean when we say activist behavior? I use that term to start us off. Um, when I think of activist behavior, I think about 
verbal behavior um, in favor or opposition to another set of behaviors. And so I think about aversive, um, these behaviors that could be aversive to a specific group or community, which could include violent behaviors emitted against Black men and women. It could be reduction of reproductive rights or policies. It could be providing opportunities for those who have gauged in aversive or coercive actions, such as rape, et cetera. Um, so I said verbal behavior, but definitely I think activist behaviors have an overt presentation. And so it could be, you know, standing outside of my, um, repre- my, my elected officials um, office and activating or speaking for change in some type of way. What do you think about that? Definition, Aaron. You like that? That's that's behavioral. At least try to make that behavioral. (laughs) You did, yeah. For real, that was actually really good. Um, When I think about activists, I kind of you know try to just think what my experience with that has been, and so the images that popped up were marches and rallies and picket lines and things like that. and again, this is something I'm really broadening my understanding of, again, why I'm so excited about this episode. Um, but like you said, these atem- attempts to dismantle, these behaviors to dismantle oppression, right? Um, and fight for like marginalized groups. But like you said, is like, y- y- I think you said, you know, that or it's in our show notes, like um, writing letters or making phone calls to to your representatives in Congress. Like those, those are activist behaviors too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, Again, my I've got a working definition, largely from um, you know just experience so far. But um, I'm so excited, um, you know, to hear that. So we have a non-behavior analyst here. So Bria, <laughs> what? How do you define activism? I mean, I think I pull from a lot of the things that y'all both said. So I definitely resonate with the um, attempts to dismantle oppression. Um, I think that, Erin, for where you were talking about, like, specific strategies, um, I see that as more as, like, underneath the umbrella of activism, but that generally activism is just resisting um, a status quo, whether that's a policy or a societal norm or um, an action that's taking place that does more collective damage than collective good. Um, And I think that that can take so many different forms, some being protests. Um, but even like do we, you know, whistleblowing is not something that we typically think of as a form of protest, but it's definitely a form of activism. So I think there are so many different ways that one can choose to dismantle oppression and that the most visible tends to be protest. But I like the more broad definition of just like how do we reject uh, values that we don't agree with and reinsert new ones? Mm-hmm. What are our replacement behaviors? Right. Because you can't just dismantle. You have to replace it with something. And I love that quote by Sada Shakur. Like, we have to be weapons of mass construction, too. Um, mm-hmm. So when we take something down, what are we putting in its place? And I think that that fullness is the activism, the both dismantling and the creation. I yes. love that. Oh, my gosh. Whoa. That was, uh, that's cool. That really hit home. Yeah, because I think that there's some, like, we we think that the only activists are the people in marches, um, but there are a lot of people behind the scenes who are doing great work to either support those protests being possible or to make sure that once the protest is over, 
that new policy is ushered in, right? And so we need activists who are also mental health practitioners and we need activists who are teachers. I mean, you know, medical professionals because racism is so pervasive, it's in everything um, and same with other forms of oppression. And so if we only have people in one area, we're going to miss out on the opportunity to like actually fully transform spaces, you know? Definitely. And I think that's the the thing that's been coming up a lot um, for folks that are in our field who are trying to do work is that we have to be able to bridge out and bridge the gap between our science and others and what has been done even before our science existed. Like activism, number one, is not new. Um, the activism in this country has a very long history. Um, and so there are a lot of things that, you know, folks that are in our sector can learn from the larger collective of folks who have shown up either on the front lines or, like you said earlier, Bria, behind the scenes, helping to push those um Right, actions right. forward. And so then can you give us some historical context of activism and like what has been the usefulness of it for social issues? Yeah, I mean, activism is as old as like I would say division of labor, honestly, because once like the collective global society moved away from survival and more towards like finding purpose, you also saw the expansion of greed, right? And like whenever that has come up, there's always been, no matter how small the group, a, a group of people pushing up against that and questioning that um, and rising up against authority. So like, I think the, the term activism didn't begin until the 20th century, but as we know, in the transatlantic slave trade, there were abolitionists um, and, and directly impacted people who were resisting the oppression put on them. Um, even before, you know, it just exists across time with um, feminist movements historically. And so, yeah, activism, activism is old and it's always been important because as we push towards this, like finding meaning and purpose, we've also been pushing away from community. Like we have become such a more individualized society and activism is directly rooted in the fact that we need each other and we need empathy towards each other to survive this. Um, I think that's what we're seeing a lot with this climate change movement and the realization that the global community has to work together to fix this and that our, our pushes towards our silos has actually hurt us more than helped us. Um, so activism has always been useful. Even if the, the long-term goals have not been met, narratives have been pushed, we have become more empathetic, um, we have come less focused on profit and more focused on people, um, and we've just we've just seen society grow more towards what are the implications of our actions. And I think that's so important. Mm -hmm. So you get to a point. So in our world, we, we consider if we're engaging in a behavior, what is the function? And so meaning what do we get out of it? And so if we're engaging in activist behavior, you know, one of the important things to ask then is what do we get out of it? So what are the consequences, um, from our activist behavior. And so what you're, what I'm hearing you say are, you know, we've made greater gains, whether it is um, we started to recognize or started to engage in behaviors that were um, not necessarily for profit, but for, you know, actualizing or understanding someone else's um, humanity versus, yeah. yeah, versus actually just it's for the love of money. And so that definitely seems like a, a great consequence or uh, and a, another 
reason that would keep me showing up to to be an activist or to engage in activist behavior, right? Um, 100%, 100%. And we're also just, I love a phrase that our um, our Justice League brother, Angelo Pinto, always says is re-indigenize instead of just decolonize. And I just think that we're seeing in so many different areas that like our push towards technology really pushed us to try and make everything as convenient as possible, as fast as possible, right? And now we're realizing that maybe fast and convenient is not more important than it being done right and it being done in a way that doesn't negatively impact other people. And I think just collectively, people are just so much more reflective on the implications of their actions. Like you said, the consequences and not just, you know, of policy or of a president, but also of our individual actions. We're seeing people care more about, okay, what does my carbon footprint look like? Not like what is America total doing, but what am I, what is my responsibility to this world? And I think that that's so important for us to never forget and lose track of the fact that we're all interconnected and what we do does have an impact and a consequence on each other. Yeah. We're going to talk about values later on the show, right, Erin? Um, I'm, I'm sitting over here. I'm in like, I'm in awe. I'm taking notes. I'm just I, like, <laughs> if I don't, if I don't talk a lot this episode, that is not a bad thing. Like I'm, I'm just sitting, I'm like highlighting stuff. I'm like, look up this. You need to know this word. <laughs> so that's what's happening on my end over that, here. Yeah. <laughs> oh okay okay well um bria how does your vision of freedom play a role in your activism if it if it has any impact at all oh it definitely does i mean i always say that my activism was very very personal and like not everyone can say that some people are coming from a place of privilege but for me it's just like my activism is rooted in the kind of world that I want to live in as a black queer woman. Right. So like, it's super. So like when I, when I do my activism, it, what does a world in 20 years look like for me? What kind of battles do I no longer want to be facing? What kind of world do I want to bring children into? Like what things do I want to be different? Um, and what do I want to say that I did to contribute to those different differences uh, for better or worse? If things go bad, I at least can say that I did everything that I could um, you know, so I think that a vision of freedom is so important for everyone to have your why and why you do this work. And for me, it's just always been like, what kind of world is safe for black people? And I also love um, a prompt that my friend Zeli Amani um, always shares, which is um, when your ancestors thought of freedom. So for me, black people, like what did they close their eyes and think of? And so for me, my vision of freedom is never like, oh, we need more billionaires or we need more. Like, I know that my grandparents, you know, my great, great, great grandparents were not in North Carolina thinking about, man, I, w- I want to have a yacht. They were thinking of safety. They were thinking of agency. They were thinking of um, having control over their families um, and being able to stay together, having culture, having moments of joy. And so that's a lot of what my activism is about is providing that to more people and and trying to communicate to people why everyone deserves those things, which kind of goes into the values, which we're going to get into later. But yeah, for sure. So one of our um, our one of our founders, um, someone that you know, if you're a behavior analyst, you quote all the time. He probably influenced um, our desire to stay in the field, <laughs> and uh, that is B. F. Skinner, and he actually wrote a lot about freedom. Um, and talked about 
the role of freedom in the government. And Aaron, I know that you and Skinner have been besties this week. So do you want to <laughs> do you want to talk about freedom from Skinner's perspective? Seriously, I think I'm about ready to break the cover off this book. It's it's pretty old anyway. But um, yeah, so uh, he wrote a book called Beyond Freedom and Dignity, uh, and it, very controversial back in the day, right? Got a lot of criticism for that. Uh, but he talks. Can we stop really fast and tell them why it was controversial? Because Bria's not in our field too, so she might not know. Yeah, I want. Do to you see. remember? Fill it, Aaron. Go ahead, Denisha. If I'm not wrong, if I'm not wrong, or if I'm not mistaken, it's about the determinism uh, argument, right? Okay. All right. So determinism just says that um, the behaviors that we engage in are basically dependent on what happened before it. And so for B.S. Skinner to come out and say that all our behaviors are dependent upon environment or something coming before it, um, basically folks thought that meant, so wait, we don't have free will? Yeah, is that what right. you're telling us? We don't have the free will to choose. And it's like, um, all right. So we're for, and that goes back to, I guess, the conversation we were having last week about like placing these internal implicators on people right. and then denying that other things are, you know, the cause or um, actually play a part in our behavior. So that was the whole thing, Bria. It was really that he said our behaviors are impacted by the things that go before them. And so right. you'll hear that as Aaron starts to talk about what freedom meant uh-huh. to Skinner. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. We'll see if we'll see if I do it justice. Okay. So at the beginning of uh, the chapter on freedom in Skinner's book, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, he he states, and I always like to quote this, he says, almost all living things act to free themselves from harmful contacts. And so when we think about harmful contacts, we can think in very small, um, discrete Irri- like irritations in our environment. So like I was saying, if you, uh, we, we engage in these reflexes that are, that are innate to us. And so like, if I get something like dust in my nose and I'm going to sneeze and, um, and that's freeing myself. I'm escaping this aversive uh, situation, this aversive environmental stimulation. And so we can think in terms of um, then learned behaviors and how we adapt to escape things that, um, you know, that, that we don't want to be a part of or that, that are harmful. Um, but I think the thing that really sticks out in that chapter is where he's talking about uh, intentional versus unintentional and he's talking about aversive control and so we can have like unintentional things where our behaviors are annoying and we uh, you know um, avoid that we can leave you can um, you know you engage in these adaptive behaviors but the problem is is that when we have these intentional uh, when we have intentional aversive control that uh, that is essentially like the pattern that like most of our social conditions, right. Where, where we have these larger kind of positions of power that are placing, um, you know, marginalized groups and using aversive control uh, to, and uh, exuding power over them, so to speak. So we engage in uh, one of two things that I really, and I'm not going to go too far into this because we've got so much other stuff to talk about, but essentially we can run away. We can avoid it, right? We can um, escape in a sense, or we can also fight back and attempt to uh, 
he says attack those. I don't know if attack. Attack's pretty like aggressive word, but attack those who are arranging those averse conditions. And so when I think of activism, I think about that second. You know, we we are you know fighting back to take back, um, you know, the power that that we don't have. Right? Does that how how does that sound? I mean, when you think yeah, about freedom. I mean, freedom. I I think that's a good synopsis of Skinner's. Um, conceptual analysis, right? It just said that freedom was absence from immediate aversive controls. Mm -hmm. Um, And he talks about it even in that chapter, he's talking about the temporal nature. So that just means like in time, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So it's either immediate or deferred in some type of way. One thing that I like about the um, analysis of freedom um, by Gold Diamond, though, is he talks about it a little differently from Skinner. It's still in alignment with with what Skinner talks about. Um, but instead of absence from, he talks about the reduction of uh, aversive controls and he's not talking about it in a temporal way. It was more so like on a scale. And um, I think of that in the, um, in the sense of like, all right, so he basically talked about freedom as like a degree. And so if you have choices that are being given. So we talked earlier about choices and determinism and free will. Um, but he spoke about it in a way where we have these available, we have these available choices for us, but it's not just that you have a choice in the matter, but how many choices that you actually have. And so when I hear that, I think about, um, the world that we live in now, like naturally people, a lot of folks with privilege would say, everyone has freedom. We all have you know, the freedom to do X, Y, and Z. But Gold Diamond brings in the need to talk about genuine choices. So if I tell you a person of color, a person um, that has been historically marginalized, that you have the choices to pull yourself up by the bootstraps, by getting a good education for yourself and making, you know, X amount of money in the work sector, I say that that's readily available. However, what I'm going to do is actually say, you don't have access to this school. You don't have access to these resources, but right, you, but the right. choice is still available. But it's, so it's not a genuine choice. I don't have access to that mm-hmm. thing in that way. And so I thought Gold Diamond's analysis of freedom was particularly like very spot on to how we see freedom working now, right? Um, and so, yeah. I just I love that so much and there's um so as this was see I'm learning so much already um but there's an Angela Davis quote on that that I love which ties into that and she says the idea of freedom is inspiring but what does it mean um if you are free in a political sense but have no food what's that the freedom to starve and I think that that's a really that false choice is what we've been served, but we've, it's been normalized so much that we are so proud to have freedom without really contesting, like, well, what does that even include? So people will literally die for the American flag um, and, like, go, you know, really go hard saying it's the best country in the world when we don't even have clean water universally. We don't have health care access. We don't have like there's a lot of things that we're missing, um, but because we constantly are at war fighting for quote unquote freedoms and that we're never even clear on, we've accepted that as our norm and we think that this is as free as it gets. So I, I just love that like pushback. And it sounds like B.F. Skinner was an activist. 
So I believe that B.F. Skinner was an activist. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Bria, I can go on and on about the things that B.F. Skinner wrote about, which is why I particularly want to see more activists within our field that are living up to the credo that he wrote because he was, he talked about aversive controls in the government. He knew that these punishment procedures that were being utilized were not useful. And so you can spin that off and you can start talking about mass incarceration, but even like gold diamonds perspective too, about choices. I think about coercion that happens in the criminal justice system. You could take a plea deal or you can like you could do this plea deal of life or you could take 50 years like are the, is this a genuine choice for a person that's actually innocent like I, yeah i have the choice to make that decision but it's still coercive and aversive and so i think it's super necessary for us to like take on that charge i hope so that more people do it but um i also think you mentioned um angela davis and in my head reading angela davis's work Angela Davis was a behavior analyst. She always asks why. She always oh, asks yeah. what was the function. What is the function? You have people that are in jails. Why? If you say there's a particular group of people that are more violent, why? What is missing from their environment? If you have people that are in jail that are illiterate, why are they illiterate? And that's a quote from um, a freedom and dick. No, wait, I'm getting it mixed up. Um, but anyway, that's one of her books. I'll put in the show notes because I can't remember the name of it right now. Yeah. Um, and that but... also comes from her background in philosophy, too, because um, mm -hmm. she went ahead abroad to Germany and really was studying that kind of stuff. And I think this got I think we're so we're not used to asking questions and we're not ingrained in that, like even down to the fact that like with children, we don't really explain to them why we just tell them because an adult said so. And we preach obedience more than like understanding. And that has gotten us so far in a negative way because now you have a bunch of people who, you know, like Nazi Germany, but now ICE, you got a bunch of people who say that they're just doing their job and they're never questioning like why and what, why is my job, you know? Right. So it was the book that I was thinking of was freedom is a constant struggle. Number one, but Bria, you're absolutely right. Um, and we actually mentioned that quote for B.F. Skinner last week, too, because he said, I can't remember it off the top of my head anymore, but um, essentially we have people that are claiming to be intelligent, but they never st stop to ask why. That's my version of his <laughs> quote. But yeah, we have to do more of asking why. What are the environmental factors that... Um, contribute to these behaviors. So, wow, that was supposed to be our introduction, but I feel like that was a good meat. <laughs> that was a good part of the show. I was just about to say, is that only the intro? <laughs> I told you it needed to be a multiple part show, Denisha. I know My how we get off on time too. Yes. <laughs> so Bria, I told the, you know, the listeners a little bit about you, but can you tell us what was the catalyst of your justice work? Like what really started your activism? For me, it was a combination of things, like three things happened my freshman year of college. And I think that for a lot of people, college is transformative. Um, but my freshman year, Trayvon Martin was killed. And then the following summer, George Zimmerman was acquitted. And that was the cat, the catalyst of the Black Lives Matter movement and swept up a lot of people. But at the same time as that was happening, I had just transitioned from a predominantly black and brown community in New York. Um, to a very white institution called Yale. And so I think both of those things happening and then 
freshman year was also the first time that I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. So those three things happening my uh, my freshman year of college really set me on this path of sort of understanding my positionality in the world, how people see me, how people see my community, because I also have certain privileges um, where I don't directly experience things for myself, but anything that's affecting anyone in my community is affecting me. Um, and so all of those things happening really pushed me to get involved in the criminal justice movement and the racial justice movement. And I just couldn't stop. I found myself, which is why I sort of say that you don't necessarily need to be um, someone who's marching necessarily to be an activist because I was taking a bunch of jobs trying to like run from activism and I was just becoming an activist in every new space. Like I took a job working in a college administration in a mental health office right after college. And I was just like advocating for students so strong and like pushing back against budgets. And I just couldn't stop like resisting things. And it got to the point where I was just like, I think I need to pursue what this looks like as a career. Um, but yeah, that, that was my beginnings. And again, it was very personal for me. It was watching Trayvon, um, be, be killed while I was experiencing so much isolation um, at Yale. And while I was reading Malcolm X's um, memoir where he's describing exactly what I'm, you know, exactly what I'm seeing in the world, the police brutality that he was speaking out about, I was watching happen before my very eyes. and was just wondering how do we have so much in common and we're from very different generations. And I just wanted to be committed to making sure that my story was no longer relatable to future generations. Like I didn't want future generations of black people to still understand what it was like to have violence be a norm. And so that, that's what made me jump into it. Wow. Bria, I did not know that you got started like when you went to college. Um, and I don't know if you know that that's actually my story too. Really? I did not. Yes. We know so that. Yeah. So um, I explained it to the, the folks who listen to the show, but for me, it was going to college and going to a predominantly white institution. And I was feeling it so like intensely in the classrooms and it just prompted me to like seek out and I had to, you know, seek out resources to kind of put names with the things that I was feeling and experiencing. I mean, we were, I mean, there mm -hmm. were people writing in words, go home on our campus. And I was being called that walking down the street and like, I was like, what is this? Cause this isn't what it was like in, in St. Louis, at least not where I live. Like St. Louis is very segregated number one. And, oh, um, yeah, but I can. stayed in my black space and I knew where not to go. Um, and so because of that, um, I wasn't around predominantly white um, places or institutions. And so when I did become part of those spaces for the life of me, I was like, no, this can't be life, you know? And I, I had to figure out um, how I could help um, myself, people in my community and help other people. Um, and like you said, Bria, it was just like a, a call, like we can't go on living like this this should not be tolerable. It should not be acceptable. So, right, right. And um, I actually found street activism because of Trayvon. Like I didn't do any street uh, activism in college because, mm -hmm. you know, I'm older than you. But um, but when I moved to New York and uh, the when Trayvon was murdered, I mean, I immediately broke down and I went straight to the street and, uh, you know, 
never turned around after that for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you talked a little wow, bit in there crazy. about, yeah, it is crazy. And I wonder how many other people listening to our show or just other people out there, they, they get that fire in them when they have to step out into the real world. I used to tell 100%. my friends that, yeah, I used to tell my friends that that was still in St. Louis, like step out into the real world. They might show you some things and the real world does show you some things, I think. So, mm-hmm. um, all right. So you talked a little bit about your, your values in that, but are there any other ones that you can think of? Um, what's valuable? Like, what are your, what motivates you to keep going? Yeah. Um, for me, definitely community. I keep going back to that because it's such a disservice that we have convinced ourselves that we can get through life without leaning on each other. And I know that I would literally not be where I am am without community, without my church community, without my current activist community, without my family. And yeah, we're just living in too many silos. So I'm, I'm a big, um, advocate for people stepping out of their, you know, individual spaces and just reconnecting with one another, because I think that that in and of itself will solve so many issues, because I think that so many, so much of the problems we have is because we truly don't see one another as human beings. I think we have been conditioned to see other people as sort of like side characters in our main show life. Um, And we don't really realize that everyone is having just as complex and full a life as we are. And as a result, everyone has these feelings and these desires and these motivations that push them to make the decisions that they make. Um, But that everyone is deserving of the same things that we want for ourselves. And I think that once we realize that we won't be comfortable with excessive greed and with capitalism and with endless wars and with, caging other human beings there's so many things that it's like we have we only find them okay because we don't see the humanity in other people and criminal justice is definitely that which i know i don't need to preach to you denisha but it just shocks me so much how we have got you know even people will say oh well a trayvon shouldn't have been walking around at night and or he shouldn't have been looking suspicious or whatever the case may be and the saddest part about that is I look at people like, wow, we are so broken as a collective society that you think that the punishment for walking around at night, you know, in a hoodie or for stealing or for whatever the case may be, for any nonviolent thing should be an execution. And so, yeah, I just think that once we step out of that and recognize community as a value, we will be so much happier. Mm-hmm. Bria, you bring up uh, once again, like, Averses or like punishment, Aaron, what do you, I mean, Skinner talked about uh, punishment in the larger society, but I definitely see punishment as being um, a cultural go-to for us. Like if somebody, if we see someone as a bad person, it's easy for us to then say they must be punished. Right. Um, And then, but when you are part of um, a a specific group um, and specifically in this instance, when we're talking about criminal justice, if you're, if you're part of a, brown and black population, if you're seen as a bad person, if that's fundamentally who we see you are, bad people deserve bad things, bad deserve punishment. Um, But then like, what do we, so what do we know about punishment, how it's, you know, society's overarching go-to, but then also what that does, like, is it useful? Is it useful as the first response? Well, punishment is like, 
it is really effective, right? Like we know not long-term and it mm-hmm. does, it's not good for humanity in, a, in just your basic sense. Like punishment is effective for us, for the people who are applying the punishment. Um, it's very reinforcing. You know, if I have a problem with society or this individual and I send them away, I don't have to deal with that right now. You know, it might create larger problems down the road, but at least right now, like, I don't have to, I don't have to deal with that. Right. Um, And it is like we, it it takes more resources. It takes more effort to, um, for reinforcement to work, I think. Um, What's your take on that? I mean, does that kind of hit where what you're thinking? Yeah. So one of the things is, if we're going to start using procedures, what we know as behavior analysts, then we, what do we need to do first? We consider the, the, the function, function. Right. right? And so yeah. I see, I see mass incarceration, um, jailing folks. Like I see um, school teachers or parents or professionals who utilize timeout procedures mm-hmm. as their go-to. And so, like you said, it serves as negative reinforcement for the person that's providing it. Like this person is irritating me or they're a bad person to me. So I get to get rid of them without even, you know, doing much, but kicking them out of the room, um, right. or sending them up to upstate to a, a prison. And, but what we have then around this country are a bunch of timeout rooms. Um, uh, And I don't want to diminish that in a way because obviously timeout is very different from mass incarceration. But what I'm trying to use is the principles and saying that if we're not looking at it from the function here. And so I think about folks, even if we are looking at where they did, maybe they stole something from a a store. Maybe they stole food. So now I'm going to send you to jail. But the true root issue here was that this person was without right. food. Right. right. Yeah. So now we're putting this punishment band-aid on it. I'm sending you upstate. It's band-aid. Exactly. I'm, I'm sending you to jail, but I did not take care of the root cause for why people are stealing in the first place. What is not provided to folks that that would have to be an option? Like, you, and so like, I think that's the function-based that that is the type of viewpoint that we can take to look at it, but that's not how society views it as a whole. And so, like you said, punishment is can be effective. Punishment procedures are not going to be effective if they're not function based. Right. Well, and so goes, yeah, it goes back to what Bria was saying in the very beginning. Like when you tear something down, what are you going to put back in its place? Mm-hmm. So if you think, because you're talking about timeout rooms, which is very relevant. So if you think about a, a kid who doesn't at school, who doesn't have resources at home, who may have experienced some trauma, who um, lives in a state of chronic stress, and then you send them to school and you expect them to um, engage in all the nice pro-social behaviors that that everybody else who has a stable home life or something, you know, it's you sending them out of the room when they may engage in some behavior that's not desirable, there may be challenging in the classroom, you send them to the principal's office, right? Mm-hmm. You suspend them, you expel them from school. It's essentially like, t- that's what we know about punishment too, is um, it doesn't, the use of it does not stay consistent. You essentially have to keep the, the punishers themselves have to keep increasing in intensity and magnitude over time for them to be effective. So you start out with like these little basic things like timeout, and then it becomes um, in school, like the IS 
S classrooms where now you have like in school suspension and then you have out of school suspension and then you have expulsion and then you send them like you were saying, step out into the real world. Now you go into the real world. We haven't given them any adaptive behaviors. We haven't looked at the function of anything um, to teach them. Here's what you would do instead, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, and so even just thinking about how um, America in America, the largest psychiatric facilities or the largest three psychiatric facilities that we have are jails. What are we missing? And um, so, so yeah, that I think we could go on and on about this, but um, behavior analysts out mm -hmm. there, if you're doing work in the criminal justice sector, I implore you to consider even just a part of this um, conversation when thinking about how we can show up to help the larger system. Because right now we have us instant, we have institutions of timeout rooms. If, if, if we're going to use my example that I gave, I like that. Um, and it's, and it's not effective. We're missing the point. We have missed what's really needed for folks that were ascending there. And so who, and, and also just think about who are we reinforcing? Whose behavior are we reinforcing? Um, and that's the other folks who, who don't want to um, either deal with it or let's just be very true. We're reinforcing someone who has something to gain from prison, private prison, the prison industrial um, complex. That is a real thing. And so people are making money off black and brown bodies. And so we have to look at that function of, you know, the behavior of putting people in jail for small infractions, um, because most people are in jail for small infractions. So, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I started watching a documentary today. Uh, I, I, what was it called? It's about the 13th Amendment. It's called 13th. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what they were talking about, like these little small infractions, getting these very large sentences, so to speak. But I think that, you know, we talked about uh, what's the function uh, segment of one of our other episodes where you're talking about like financial gain that can come from these things. And that's what is looking at the, the environment I think is really, really important. Yeah, for sure. All right. So that was, that was good. Bria, do you want to add anything onto that? I tried to give like a psych, you know, a behavior analyst spin on it, talking about what's the function, why, are, why would we even be, why would we even cycle people into jails? But do you have anything else that you want to add? Yeah, I mean, just you hit it right on the head, but even the looking at the function, when we really look at the function, there was never a good function, right? Like the the story of prisons as rehabilitation was always a lie to salvage to society. Um, and it's really always been about capital. Um, the proliferation of prisons happened after the ending of slavery, and it was really just to fill a new labor force. So we also have to be honest about where these systems come from when we're looking at how can they be reformed. Like, you really do have to shift the function. The function was never actually to rehabilitate people. Otherwise, you wouldn't have book bans at prisons, and you wouldn't have you would make it so hard for families to connect with their loved ones while they're inside and you wouldn't make, you know, recidivism is incentivized. And that is the part that we need to realize. Um, and then to your point about um, jails as mental health facilities, yeah, especially in LA, LA jails are the biggest um, mental health um, providers in the, uh, in the state. And that is 
disgusting, right? Like that jails are not mental health providers. Um, and they're actually dens that exacerbate mental health. So yeah, just there's, it's so layered. And I think oftentimes we underestimate how deep it goes. And as a mm-hmm. result, we don't get to the real root. So yeah, we definitely have to look at function and really dive deep into history to, to figure that out. Yeah, definitely. And even just what you bring up, uh, the the actual environment of prisons and jails. And if that environment is not rehabilitative and that environment is actually useful to breed more violence and, and whether that comes from the people that are working there that um, actually employ violence over the imprisoned, um, incarcerated folks that are there or whether it is now, you know, sink or swim, um, our survival of the fittest for some folks, like how, how is that rehabilitative? Um, and so then now we start to think about then what is the function of jail? Like, and so Bria talked about recidivism being another part of the, the need to, to get more money. We need you to come back. Um, so, all right. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about, so I, I asked Bria about values. And for those that are listening, I do want to state, um, because values are super important. And you heard Bria say tonight, the things that got her involved in activism, they come back down to her motivating operations, her MOs, like um, what she cares about. And that that's exactly what values are. Um, but they're not just statements. And so I think that's the thing that our listeners have to be aware of. Um, you can say that you care about something till you're blue in the face, but your actual values, they change your behavior. Like you, because you can choose to act in alignment with, the things that you care about. Um, so values aren't necessarily goals either. If I say that I value um, transparency, that's not necessarily necessarily the goal in itself. That's just what's going to impact my behavior. And I might make a goal to, you know, tell this person one thing that I really feel about them that I might have been afraid to tell them before. So that, those are the difference. And so I think it's necessary for us to assess our own values with, you know, our activism work or to decide, I guess, if we want to get into activism. But that brings me to my next question, Bria. How did you determine what to fight for? So what specifically aided your decision to activate in the realm of activism that you're in now? Mm, I mean, I think it, I think a lot of it really is informed by what's urgent at the moment. So when I first got involved, Black Lives Matter movement was picking up. And so it was, you know, that was everything that I wanted to fight for. Um, as Trump was getting elected and I got involved with Women's March, it was feminism. Um, lately, it's been a lot of environmental justice things. I think for me, I know that all of these issues are intersecting and, and affect each other. And that the more that I tried to fight um, the criminal justice system, the more I realized that there was a gender lens I wasn't, uh, you know, there was feminism that I needed to inject in there. Or when I would touch on environmental justice, I would realize that typically some of the most vulnerable people are incarcerated people. Um, and so, I don't know, I, I, I guess it is just what's going on in the world that needs our attention the most. But I also think, like I said, a lot of it is so personal for me that I'm always looking at what is affecting the black community right now most. Um, and how can I 
be constantly working on issues that will make life for black people easier. Um, and I think a lot of us, especially in the social media era, do that. You know, it's like what is taking over and what is grabbing our attention. Um, but then also, what do we feel personally tied to, whether we know someone who's impacted by it or we ourselves are, you know? Yeah. I didn't add this on the um the questions list, but um, do you think you could take a stab at it? So um, one thing that Linda says, Linda is a, a person in um, the movement, one of our um, activist sisters, but she says that she has a Palestinian um, Muslim woman. She's not free until black people are free. And so can you, yeah. can you describe what that means for folks like that are listening, but just what does it mean for the, the movement and like how we, how should we, we regard um, our activism in alignment with black uh, individuals here? Yeah. I mean, solidarity is so, so important. And um, like I said, like I said, this really depends on community. Activism is all around community. And we can't just fight about the things that we're personally impacted by. We have to understand that anything impacting any one of us impacts all of us. What's happening abroad impacts us. What's happening on the other side of the country impacts us. What's happening in our city to people who look and act and come from backgrounds and nothing like us is happening to us. And um, I love that quote that you mentioned, but I also love James Baldwin when he was talking to Angela Davis, he was like, if they come for you tonight, they're coming for me tomorrow. And I think that the selfish way, not the selfish, but like, if we need to individualize it, we can also just understand that if we don't fight when it's someone else, it'll eventually be us and we'll be looking around like, who's fighting for me, right? So it's it's either you fight now before it gets to you or you don't. And then when it gets to you, there's no one left to fight with you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. So, um, Angela walk, I mean, not Angela, (laughs) Alice Walker regarded Angela Davis as a voice that inspired new voices and scholars. Um, but she also talked about how Angela Davis inspired activists. And so I kind of see you as someone who could do that, Bria. And which is another reason why I won. (laughs) Don't say that. That's the best compliment. (laughs) I, I know, which is why I wanted to have you on the show, but, um, can you can you give us some inspiration right now? Um, hopefully you can let us know um, how, like, what are some things that um, you actually did to determine what was important to you? Like, did you do it? Did you have to like journal anything um, or was it just like an immediate draw or you, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. I mean, for me, there was an immediate initial draw, but like all people, I didn't wake up woke, right? So my initial draw was not, I want to end the prison industrial complex. I didn't have that language or that even understanding. I had something that I like was intuitively pulled to, which is police brutality cases. And I had something that like, whenever I would hear stories about this, or whenever I would see this pop up on my feed, like it would like really like pull at my heartstrings. So I do think that there is something that's immediate, but I think that ultimately it does take a really deep dive um, to decide what you're going to really invest in over time because, you know, I I understand the value of everything, but I can't be everywhere, right? So I can't try and do and be an activist on every issue. So I, I had to hone in on something 
And for me, that came less through journaling and more through reading. I read a lot after reading the autobiography of Malcolm X, memoirs of other civil rights leaders, nonfiction books, theory books, um, and I articles, documentaries, and I just wanted to understand what people were saying about this issue area, what work had been done already, what still needed to be done. And I recommend everyone do that. that yes, you do have to dig personally, but you also have to understand the landscape for what you're trying to get into and see if it makes, like, not just if it's something that you're passionate about, but is it something that you can contribute towards? Is it something that you're willing to contribute towards in the long haul? And so, yeah, I, I was just diving deep and that sent me into a rabbit hole that led to criminal justice. Um, but even when I find a new issue that I'm interested in, the first thing I always do is ask for book recommendations. Like, how can I read more about this and understand, like, is this something that I can really devote to? Or is this something that I just want to, like, you know, show up to the protests and elevate on social media, but I am more taking other people's lead. And I think that everyone should do that and see what am I best suited to lead on and what am I best suited to support on, you know? Yes. Yes. I love that whispered yes. <laughs> what do you think about that, Erin? That was a sexy yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, that that resonates a lot with me, especially within the context of the show, what you said, what you're, what you're able to lead and what you're able to support, right? And so um, I think I, I think about my identity and I'm a very white person, right? <laughs> um, and I came to you, Denise, and I was like, I don't know how to to do some of this stuff. I don't, I don't understand. Um, not that I'll ever understand, but like, I need to know how to support, you know, you all. Like, what do I need to do? Um, so we talked about an episode specifically for that. But that's what you talk about book recommendations. Like, that's all I've been um, ingesting lately, so to speak. Is 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 work. Um, or documentaries or, or books, um, movies, whatever it is. Uh, and so I think it's kind of recognizing your place. We talk about accomplice behaviors and it's recognizing um, where your voice is and where it should be, uh, um, who not to take the voice away from, what you can do to support that. And it's a learning process. And it's, for me, it's, it's being open and vulnerable to say, look, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. Like, I want to support you. I need to know. Um, but, but I think that's, it's just asking, you know? Yeah, 100%. And I think I, that goes back to it is like, we're not used to being inquisitive and asking questions about it. And so for, for us, that feels like a hard conversation or a taboo one. Um, but it's just important to like understand that we don't know everything and that there are so many answers out there if we just seek them, you know? Before we, before we get out of here, though, there were a couple of questions that I wanted to ask you, and we're definitely splitting this into two shows. So, yes. um, <laughs> so hang on, not only are you first our first guest, but you're our first like, two-part series yeah <laughs> yes we're just gonna knock I them out <laughs> right let's get it Glory. so this episode has been so amazing it looks like we're going to have to roll into a part two thank you for committing to being beautiful humans with us tune in next week for part two
it's Denisha. And Erin. I just wanted to take the time here to let you know that if you're thinking about doing a podcast, there's a way for you to do a show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Yeah, you know, uh, we probably would have never gotten the show off the ground if it wasn't for a Pretty Easy Podcast. So Pretty Easy Podcast helps podcasters get their shows recorded and posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal. Record from your home or your office or at the park. Pretty Easy Podcast caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. So if you have an idea for a show and you need someone to rely on to help you get it done, go to prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. Be heard and have some fun podcasting. You know you want to do it, so go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. Stuff, and I, I don't think I've, I've necessarily gotten pushback about anything I've i've done specifically um but what i have contacted are people of uh within my quote-unquote group maybe like revolving around gender or something like that that have made choices to um to not live like the authentic like in the authentic way like very out way Mm -hmm. that i have too and and um to kind of sit in that space and to hear, like, I could see how it could easily be like, well, what are you talking about? Like, this is what we're fighting for. This is what we're, if you're not, if you're not going to come out you're not going to do the hard things, then, um, then whatever thoughts might come to people's mind, but it's like to be able to sit and to listen and to hear them explain, okay, this is, this is why it might not be safe for them. It might not, you know, there are all these things Mm -hmm. that are kind of showing up for me that, that I've experienced, but I know there are people who, who aren't willing to, to have that, I guess you go back to like flexibility in terms of like what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing. And, um, and it's hard for people to, to hear that. Yeah. I think you're speaking to, I'm going back to privilege now because I'm sitting Mm -hmm. listening to you and thinking about the kids on my unit and we get a fair proportion of um, trans kids and non-binary kids on our unit. And, you know, one of my kids was in an, a situation with a staff member a while ago where the staff member, I guess, was inviting them to just be out. Um, and the, my young person was just not, was really uncomfortable with being put on the spot. I think it was a misunderstanding, but at some point they were really upset by that and we, we worked through it. And I'm listening to you and thinking, you know, I agree, that's not safe. It's not, it's not, uh, necessarily their job to do that right there and then it's not their fight to fight in that moment but you know I felt but my privilege (laughs) and my position allows me to do that to model for those kids and to um, step outside my internalized stuff so I struggled for a long time I didn't even notice at first but then I struggled for a long time with for example having a picture of my partner in my office and having my rainbow stuff and my trans stuff and all my black lives matter and whatever else in my office um and didn't do it and I didn't out myself at work I never talked about my partner and working with these kids I'm just like I got I cannot do this anymore. I need to do this for them. I'm in a privileged position of an adult, being an adult where I can model for them. It might make other people uncomfortable, but what am I hiding from? I'm really hiding from my own shame, my own fears. And I can't, I need these young people to at least see that they can choose, that there is other people 
who are, you know, if they're not able to be in a position of power, privilege, or be able to, you know, be out to their family or on the unit or whatever it is, they can see me doing it. I don't know if that's making any sense, but I was just like, I can't, I need to do this for them. Like that was just so important to me. Um, no, it makes a lot of sense. And too, I think like the last show that we had Megan Kirby on, she was talking about uh, behavior analysts being political and should we be political or not? And so you're not only being a model for like your clients and uh, the kids that you're working with, but also for other behavior analysts in terms of like doing social justice work too. Um, and that's a privilege that, that all three of us, you know, have is to be in a position where we can do that where we're not at risk of losing our job if we decide to speak up or something like mm -hmm. that where mm -hmm. it's actually um at least my my job encourages me to do stuff mm -hmm. like this um so but yeah i think privileges uh, that definitely comes to mind when you say that for sure so, so using or using your privilege that's what i mean like using mm -hmm. your privilege to help move the move the field forward or move the world forward or move like you know just move my unit forward um and create a safer space for the kids and a more diverse space and more of the space that i want to be it you know mm -hmm. um yeah can we talk more like um so i really do feel like there's obviously there there's power in the folks who um are from the specific communities um themselves but then there's also power in those who hold privilege and then decide to use their privilege in order to make the space better for them, for other people. Because if you already are from a marginalized group, whatever that group might be, you already are, you know, showing up in the world with a lot more um, labor put upon you than you should have to. And to have, you know, privilege and then be able to use that privilege, speak up um, and, and notice that when you're speaking up that you're not speaking for, right? Like you'll never be able to speak for mm -hmm. these people or for mm -hmm. this group, but I am speaking up in solidarity with, and then hopefully with you speaking up that one, you are making that environment safer for these folks. But then when you do speak up that hopefully you're also fueling other individuals who who might have felt like they wanted to speak up for themselves but just couldn't but to even just know that there's somebody else in this environment that might get it um and because they've already helped to kind of put this out now I'm I'm comfortable with saying this or now they've done this and I don't have to like I don't have to exhibit or um, emit more labor um because this person who holds the privilege that has probably a lesser likelihood of um, having ramifications for speaking up, you know, they've done that for me. And so realizing that, that that's there. Um, and this is happening in our workplaces every single day. Like, you know, I, I think a lot of times where we start to think like, you know, behavior analysts, we don't really, we have all the answers, right? Cause we know how behavior works, but mm -hmm. all the stuff that's happening outside of behavior um, analysis is, is happening inside. And so if you're at your organization, I can guarantee you there are individuals from marginalized groups that are feeling like their voices are not being heard, that they're not given a fair shake, that they can't be who they are at work, that they can't speak how they want to speak at work without fear of being, you know, typecasted or whatever. And so just kind of like noticing other people around you um, and then using that to, to just 
I I'm losing a word, but just like speaking up and just know and saying that, hey, we're we might just be um missing the mark here. Or, you know, and, and there's something more that we can do to allow this um agency, this organization to feel a little bit more comfortable. Cause it really doesn't matter if you say, you know, we have diversity and I can look at, you know, the folks that are um, on our website and say, oh, look, there are these few people of color. Oh, look, there's this non-binary person here. Oh, look, there is this, um, these women over here. And then they show up to work and they're having to kind of do the same thing, you know, all the, all the good spots at the job are going to all the, the men in the room, they're being paid more. Um, the, um, minorities are not being able to speak up for the microaggressions that they experience. It's like, who cares that you're showing us that you have this diverse workplace? It's not really diverse if you actually take it apart. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's the powerful part about privilege. Is that my third rant? Yes, it is. It's all right. We've all been around. So. We're gonna. I'm gonna start tallying. <laughs> you should tally them all. <laughs> no, I equate that to like slapping a safe space sticker on like the door, and then you walk in, and nothing has changed yeah. on the inside. You know, yeah. right? Um, so, and I see that happen quite often. So. I, I I'm thinking about what you just said, Denisha, and also what I want to keep saying is that, and you have to be willing to be uncomfortable. Like if you have privilege, then doing anything that's not maintaining the status quo of that privilege is going to be uncomfortable. Like, mm -hmm. and that's okay. That's the price of admission to, to moving towards values, right? Values. It means that it matters to you. If it's uncomfortable, it means it matters. There's something at stake that's important. Um, and I've, I keep coming back to that. Like that means speaking up is like not easy. Like that's hard when you're not used to it, right? It, you, it's going to be uncomfortable. So I don't know. I keep thinking that like, just if you're uncomfortable, you're doing it right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, if it feels difficult, you're probably doing it right. If it's uncomfortable, you're probably doing it right. That doesn't, I'm not talking about being unsafe. I'm just talking about being willing to feel uncomfortable and to be, to put yourself out there. Like, and that's something that people with privilege are not used to do. Hence they're privileged. <laughs> um, I think that's important to acknowledge too. Like I know for me, like I remember I was, I'm like, when I've been struggling with some of the uncomfortableness of doing some of the talks I've been doing or, um, and then I'm moaning about it and I'm moaning to Denisha and then I'm thinking like, oh, but like, this is how, this is like, what am I, what do I have to complain about? Like, this is, I have to be willing to be uncomfortable. This isn't even that uncomfortable compared to the, the uncomfortableness that minorities have been putting up with the racism, um, the history that we have here. Like it's, it's, it's okay. I don't know. I'm ranting now, but I'm not making any sense. But I've been thinking about that a lot. Like my willingness to be uncomfortable and recognizing that it's got it's like tiny compared to what the people that I'm trying to speak speak up for um, have been experiencing. Um, mm -hmm. That made total sense. Okay, good. It did. <laughs> um, good. So, Evelyn, you do something during your talks. Um, and it's a eulogy type of exercise. Can you talk to us about that? I know 
Aaron, you were at the same workshop that I was the first time that I saw you do this, Evelyn. Um, we eulogized our field. So can you walk our listeners through what that exercise is and like kind of your rationale for creating it? 